Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the future of higher education. I'm delighted to be here today with Esther Barazzoni, the longtime president of Chatham University. Esther, it's great to be with you. It is a pleasure to see you again and to be here. Thank you. Esther, I wonder if you could start by just sharing a little bit about your childhood, um, what you were thinking about when it came to careers, schooling, and things like that, and, and how you got kind of started into academia. Okay, sure. Uh, I grew up in southern West Virginia, so like uh, many little girls there, I felt I had two alternatives. One was nursing, the other was being a teacher. So uh, I actually thought I was going to be a nurse, and I became the president of the future nurses of America. So uh, the the bug for education really hit uh after I moved to Florida and went to New College in Sarasota, Florida, where I personally experienced how one's life could be transformed by education. And so that set my path. And, and New College, as the name suggests, was quite an innovative place. So for those who aren't familiar, tell us a little bit about what, what right. undergraduate education was like there. Uh, like Probably a lot of what I will say today, both a combination of old and new, New College was named after one of the Oxford Colleges, uh, New College, which was founded a long time ago. And it was based on, uh, but it was quite new to U.S. higher education, to be purely tutorial, non-graded contract system based on helping students set their intellectual goals and meet them with the guidance of a faculty member, an advanced learner. We had a little bit of general education, but not much, with the result that um, New College uh, did very well. I was in the charter class. In fact, I was the first student admitted to New College. Uh, And the result was that uh, we had one of the highest going uh, graduate school rates in the country because we were usually pretty well prepared to be directed and and to take on, uh, self-directed and to take on projects of the sort that graduate education required. For me, the most important part was, and particularly as it later related to Chatham, I would say I became uh, a great educational iconoclast in the sense that I have very few formulas for how things ought to be done, except that very high quality and with great attention to the uh, to the individual student and great faculty and presence. Well, I was I, I just had the pleasure to talk with Rick Miller, who was the founding president at Olin College, uh-huh. and he was sharing. You know, they actually had thirty students come before their first class to help uh-huh. them co-design things, which was was a sort of expediency because their building wasn't ready. But it was quite a brave move on your part to go 
to be a part of a brand new class at a new college. Can you talk about, you know, what led you to pick new college and were you looking at other places? What was it uh, that attracted you to, to be a pioneer in that way? Well, I was, I was totally thrilled by new college and what new college represented, what I learned uh, about it. But I also had, uh, didn't know what choices I had. I went to a very poor, uh, as in bad quality, uh, high school, which was politically driven. The school superintendent was elected, not appointed for his credentials. (laughs) And so uh, I had been told by just about everyone that there really was uh, nowhere out of state I could go. So I was headed for the local community college. Now, all that turned out to be untrue. Uh, but but fortunately, uh, in the process, New College uh, had, had, had come to recruit me, and uh, I was thrilled to be recruited. Great. So, so you mentioned that that gave you the, the bug for education. How did Correct. you then go about thinking about you know, your, your career options and what you were going to do next? And, and, and how did that career unfold? Not very carefully. I, I, I mean, to be perfectly truthful, uh, I had the blessing uh, that a lot of Chatham students have, at most, I would say, of having stellar advisors who uh, would call me aside and give me advice about what I ought to be thinking about. Because uh, while my family appreciated education, there was not an awful lot of educational experience there, uh, except for one of my brothers who'd gone to the Air Force Academy. And so I'd seen that you could see the big world if you really had an opportunity. But two of my professors called me in one day and they said, you know, you came here as a pretty green Southern kid. You're still pretty green, but you're better. But we, <laughs> but we think that you need to study and live abroad for a while. Here's a Fulbright application. Fill it out. Yeah. <laughs> I spoke Spanish. Uh, I had studied in high school. And I also had a chance to go work with a Peace Corps volunteer during college in what was our equivalent of a, of a J-term or a Maymaster. And so I did uh, while applying to graduate school. Uh, and so I spent a year in, in Madrid. But it was, it was really very powerful uh, advising that, that gave me an understanding of what the path might be. I went to uh, Columbia University and was a fellow of the faculty. Uh, came back from Spain to a university ripped apart by the protests from the Vietnam War. I entered Columbia in the fall of 68. So simply my uh, learning opportunities came with life (laughs) and great advisors. And, and, and so which path did you take in graduate school? And and then tell us a little bit about how your academic career unfolded. I was uh, an undergraduate major, uh, again, self-designed because everyone was, in uh, philosophy and history. And so at Columbia, I pursued European intellectual history, a doctoral degree, and I did my work on the uh, Scottish Enlightenment, which was a very, uh, to me, interesting project at the time. And uh, I had an opportunity to go to uh, Hamilton Kirkland College, then an experimental women's college, 
and uh, teach as an acting faculty member. I ended up staying five years, two as acting faculty member, three on tenure track until I uh, had by that point married and moved to Philadelphia and switched to uh, an administrative career because those were very tough days, the early 80s, when I was really uh, shifting around in my pathway. Very tough days to get uh, one, much less two, teaching jobs. And my uh, husband had gotten one at Penn. And so when confronted with the question, what was I going to do? I went to a very special program at the Wharton School, which was for a lot of unemployed PhDs uh, to, if, if we showed an indication in any flair for business, it was a highly selective program. I, we were admitted. Uh, we fondly called it the retread program. <laughs> and it was marvelous because I learned to read uh, balance sheets and uh, to understand uh, profit and loss and to balance the fact that I'd done something as heady as 18th century intellectual history with uh, a few of the nuts and bolts of how to do what I thought I eventually wanted to do, which was run a nonprofit organization. I didn't think I'd go back into education. But I so did. the Wharton program wasn't specifically for higher ed leaders. It was no. just to help PhDs think about other paths than being a professor. Everything from being a stockbroker to being a CEO. Uh, so it was a wonderful program. Great. So, so given that you were thinking about leading a nonprofit, when did the idea of first becoming a university president come to mind, and, and how did you become connected with Chatham? Right. Uh, well, I think... I think once one is in higher ed, you ask yourself, well, maybe that's a job I'd like to have, particularly given the amount of experimentation I was privileged to witness. I saw how important that leadership was, uh, both for the faculty and for administrators. So uh, it seemed like a, a very interesting possibility to me. Um, but it was not anything I was aiming directly for because by that point I was trying to balance a family and career. But I went into fundraising at first because uh, rather than into academics because I thought that it was a skill that would serve me well if I went yep, to any nonprofit, if I went into education. And so I, I went to work for first University of Pennsylvania and then uh, Swarthmore. Uh, and I had, uh, as a fundraiser, I was the corporate foundation fundraiser, and then I became uh, associate provost, which was uh, a great honor uh, Swarthmore gave me because they knew I was academically credentialed, and I was the one who was working to help develop the presentation of academic programs and to carry back the message of what it seemed that the foundations were really interested in. So I was a translator, if you will. Yeah. And uh, that was a great experience. And then the extraordinary thing happened of uh, I had a choice between going into continuing education for a Philadelphia university uh, or be, or stepping to a very different kind of school than I'd been in before, uh, which fascinated me. And I went to, uh, to what was then called Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science, and today it's Philadelphia University. 
and it was a highly entrepreneurial urban institution. And I learned an enormous amount after having been at uh, really prestige selective institutions like Swarthmore and University of Pennsylvania, where, uh, well, you know, things were as they were <laughs> in, in that kind of institution. But I got to see an institution that really uh, had almost gone broke and had been turned around by a really entrepreneurial president and faculty, the nation's oldest textile institution. And I'd been involved, but it had become comprehensive long before I was there. But we pushed it to be even more comprehensive with things like architecture programs and uh, computer graphics and design. And so uh, that's when Chatham came across my my screen and it became uh, – Really, I would say a perfect fit because uh, Chatham, too, had been one of the most uh, selective uh, women's colleges in the 60s, still held that view of itself, Mm -hmm. even though it was struggling greatly and in need of uh, a bit of uh, entrepreneurship. So that's how all that fits together. Does it make sense to you? Yeah, it makes total (laughs) sense. So, so. When, when, when you started exploring the Chatham opportunity and eventually made the decision to, to join as president, were, were you aware of the extent of the financial challenges that the university or then the college was facing and what you yes. were taking on? Uh, yes, but that, I just want to go back to the last thing one moment sure. and say, I don't know if I made it clear that I was an academic dean at Philadelphia right. University, which yeah. was a huge opportunity. Uh, that poor and knowing president gave to me. (laughs) It was was such an unlikely path for someone coming out of development. Uh, But in any case, it was wonderful. Uh, Yes, David, I was aware, but that doesn't mean I understood. Sure. Chatham withheld nothing. Uh, The board withheld nothing. I was told everything, but I was a first-time president. And uh, I had only had a summer program at the Wharton School. (laughs) So I didn't really understand that much about uh, what some of the things meant. And, of course, uh, interviewing is one thing, but living in the community that you are supposed to lead, as well as be part of the larger Pittsburgh community, uh, I I got a stronger and stronger impression of the challenges we faced. So, so t- talk to me about that first year. What what was it like coming in there as a new president, still quite a young president as well, coming into that role um, and, and taking on challenges? You know, I, I know that your your predecessor they had been selling off buildings in order to to make the budget balance, and so it it was obviously you know, a challenging situation you'd inherited. So how did you go about sort of figuring out the, the direction forward? Uh, well, those were two different questions, I think. If, if yeah. I may, and if, but just spell out the challenges a little yeah. bit more, um, if that's all right. The, yeah, please. Uh, the challenges were, as you described them, absolutely financial. Uh, Chatham Chatham was selling off properties in order to meet fundraising goals, in order to balance budget. Uh, It was also spending unrestricted endowment, uh, which had shrunk to a little bit over $30 million. 
and uh, the, I mean, the whole endowment was a little over 30, and the unrestricted portion was 9 million. Uh, in addition, the enrollment was heavily skewed toward older students. There were 40% non traditional age women, uh, so they were mid 30s and, and older. Um, there was a very bad feeling about Chatham's future viability in the community, so that uh, either borrowing money or raising money was extremely difficult. Uh, one foundation official I went to uh, and to ask whether we could take the grant they had given us for programmatic development uh, at the time, one particular program, which was not time for it, uh, to ask, could we use it for marketing? He looked at me levelly and he said, uh, well, our question is, when are you going to merge with Carnegie Mellon? Because we had been put on Carnegie Mellon's uh, acquisition list, as it were. Uh, so there was a general mistrust in the community, and needless to say, there was a very uh, demoralised community uh, and it was the period that I took to referring to in shorthand, which everyone understood, as the late unpleasantness, <laughs> because the alumni body was in turmoil as well. Uh, they were very unhappy, both uh, Chatham uh, and uh, one of the other women's colleges, Mills, had considered going co-ed at the same time. And their student bodies had just blown up and women were on national television shaving their heads in tears. And, you know, it was it was quite a turmoil. So yeah. so there were there were lots and lots of things that that needed to be done at, at one time because the challenges were just immense and across the board. But I had come because it was an institution that. Uh, had been a prestigious institution, was still a quality institution, uh, high quality. The Chatham faculty uh, had nearly 100% doctoral degrees. Uh, and while they weren't a heavy publishing faculty, they were, many did, and they were totally dedicated to their students and to the institution. So there, and, and the alumni, Difficult as they were, here I come from this urban institution, not a liberal arts college. You know, thank God I had a lot of liberal arts in my personal background. Right. I could often say, but wait, I'm an 18th century intellectual historian. <laughs> I get it. But, uh, yeah. but uh, they uh, cared. They cared deeply. And between that and the fact that the board had undertaken a strong self-examination before they hired me to determine what kind of person they wanted and assured me that they would be there, as one of them put it. Uh, I said, what if I have to go out on a limb? And they, I, they said, we'll hold your limb up. We won't saw it off. And, and they did that. So all the elements were right. And, and even more than I could see the Pittsburgh community was very supportive of Chatham being one of the oldest institutions in Pittsburgh. And uh, all of the, I, I fortunately had read that correctly. The elements were there. So you also asked me, how did we come up with a plan? Yeah. So uh, part of the 
critique of what's wrong was that uh, there was such an imbalance between traditional age students and non-traditional age students. So we had to do something to appeal to the traditional age student. And what was that? Uh, Because to many of those students, the women's college didn't feel like a women's college because the older women kind of felt to them like a blanket presence, the way men in the classroom might. They're saying, you just don't get it. You just don't know. You haven't experienced the world. So we had to sort some things out there. So one of the things that we did was decide we should start a continuing education program at hours that were more convenient to the older women, whom we treasured. And many of our most committed alums are from that group. Please don't mistake me as critiquing them. I'm not. I'm just saying it was a difficult environment to, uh, to really make a go of a traditional age uh, women's college. Uh, So we had to do something about that. We had to get bigger and we had to seem bigger. To get bigger, we knew we had to do program development because we were uh, so traditional, uh, liberal arts at that point. It was becoming very clear. I had come from an applied institution, knew how much students wanted to have job readiness uh, as, as part of their portfolio when they left, however you achieved it. Uh, so that was one thing. We had to add opportunities for students to be job ready. Another was that we had to, um, we had to seem bigger. And that's one of the reasons that we focused on partnerships. So by my first year there, we had signed a lot of very special agreements. I forget now, six, seven of them, with local institutions in an already very collaborative city, as you know. Uh, But, for example, we signed an agreement where uh, Carnegie Mellon uh, public policy program would take the senior year at Chatham as the first year of their graduate program which was a huge compliment to Chatham. And we also signed such an agreement with the School of Public Health at the University of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that students, we, we didn't really have much of a program in environmental studies. That was one of the new majors we decided to start. Uh, but this became the way to fast track them into a master's in environmental health and other areas. So the third thing that we did, was, in addition to getting bigger, looking bigger, uh, was to try to look different. And that's when we began to think about this shortening time to dual degrees, which became an early hallmark of Chatham. A lot of other schools have done it since, but we were among the very first, uh, as in the partnership I talked about uh, externally, but then as we built our own graduate programs, we were even more fully able to control the ability to do uh, six years worth of of work for undergraduate and graduate in five. So we tried very hard and always challenged ourselves with the notion that Chatham has to be worth saving. It has to be a quality institution. We can't just run programs and recruit students without regard to to the quality. So that was the, the way we did our thinking. And as to 
knowing which programs we wanted to start. Thank you asked me that. Uh, I brought a fair amount of that knowledge with me as a, as a former dean so that I was pretty close to what was happening to the health sciences in uh, the public. And I, I knew that that was something. But I didn't know that health sciences would fly at Chatham. So that's one right. of the important questions. So we really sort of often took a back-to-the-future approach to Chatham. We said, where did our graduates go? What did they do? So that uh, instead of just being a feeder to other schools uh, without knowing what it was, how could we offer the programs that it seemed our graduates saw it when, when they left Chatham? And that's when we learned how many scientists, how many um, health scientists, how many doctors, uh, how many uh, other health professionals we had. Uh, and so that was sort of our methodology was first to study ourselves uh, and see. And, and you know, uh, David, it really paid off because the alumni were proud of what we were doing. And we unearthed and celebrated the fact that there had been earlier applied programs, such as nursing, long right, before. And going going we all had, the way back to the one of the very first social work programs back in the early 19th. Absolutely. So, so it was sort of a, a casting and recasting of everything. And, and finally, on that note, I will say one of the things that became very clear was the, I, I was hired with the pledge that I would do everything within my power to keep Chatham a women's college. Right. And for 22 years I did, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, it, what was very clear was that that image of what it meant to go to a women's college had to change. Mm -hmm. And the reassessment of what women's education had to be, particularly at this struggling institution, had to be done. And so we did that. We worked to switch Chatham's image, and we stopped producing pictures for admissions of uh, women in residence halls cuddling teddy bears. That was not what we wanted. So we put out an image of women's colleges, and I had stolen this directly from someone I couldn't, I don't, don't remember who I stole it from, but it, I think it was someone at Holyoke or somewhere. And it was women's colleges are Olympic training villages. And I thought that was a great image. And so that was part of how we tried to think about our women's college. And it worked. That's great. So, so given that you know the the college was was not in great financial shape when you joined, and that the the faculty, the resources needed for starting health science graduate programs, that's not insignificant, right? Because it was right. new competencies, new facilities. How how did you go about financing that and getting that off the ground once right. you'd identified where you wanted to go? Yes, that's a pretty remarkable story, and it's a, a tribute to the Chatham Board, which uh, has been very bold um, always, really. It was very hard. We had to cut operations, operating expenses, in order to uh, get some cash to move forward, uh, and I'll tell you about that in a moment. And we had to self-fund 
because, as I said, foundations weren't going to support us at this point. They were waiting to see how long it was till we went out of business. And uh, even though the one did give us, the uh, Richard King Mellon did give us permission to switch a grant to marketing, which was enormously helpful. Uh, but we self-funded by uh, using unrestricted endowment, which had been being used anyway to cover operations. We used that to invest in new programs. So we cut the cost of operations in self-funded investments. We had $9 million in unrestricted endowment, and we needed $3 million a year, both to pay bills, but also to start new programs. And so we had three-year runway. That was it. Uh, And by golly, by the end of three years, we were in the black because we operated at uh, an extraordinary speed. And the Chatham faculty really uh, got the message and picked up the pace. And there were some difficult things we all had to do along the way. One of the things was at that time, it was tough for the faculty to switch the image of uh, away from an undergraduate residential liberal arts college, but they did. And uh, they were not the mission deciders on whether we started graduate programs or not. That seemed to be the province of the board and that, to me, and that created a, a bit of fuss doing that. But they were the keepers of quality, the faculty. And so they approved the uh, programs, they approved, they they curriculum, which was, of course, also dictated by external accrediting agencies, sure. and yeah. and they also uh, approved the hiring of faculty. We had the PT and the OT program, which we started together on purpose, mistakenly thinking they could share some resources, uh, <laughs> but uh, they uh, took nine months from program approval to the first students walking in the door. Wow. It was exceptional, and that created a phrase you've probably heard of Chatham time. Yeah. That uh, undue time is not wasted in process. Doesn't mean any process is left out. The faculty were fully consulted, but there was no uh, filibustering. <laughs> so, so you started with PT and OT PT to get and them OT. off the ground. They, and, and- they were our... We actually, I think by, was it the fall of 94, we had, uh, no, by 93, we had some graduate programs in place. This was the other thing that we did. We cobbled together uh, resources from what existed to use it in two programs so that we already had uh, education certification. So we morphed it into a master's of education right. using the same faculty. And, and our enrollment was so low. Our faculty were under-enrolled, right. uh, many of them. And we also went through, and I guess I've skipped over the cuts, we cut 20% of the faculty and 20% of the staff. And that was exceedingly hard. And the worst thing I had to do, and something I swore I would never do again. And that, that, that was the operational <laughs> cut you referred to, to free the resources to yes. invest yes. in the new program. Yes, and that was done uh, by a very consultative process, but eventually uh, with the board and the senior administration making the decision. But I spent 
days upon days with faculty members talking about, all right, we've got to do this. And they unfortunately had been through something like that before where they were very hurt by it and they had been forced to actually make the choices. So we had the uh, people, we had philosophical discussions about what are the fields that are at this point absolutely essential? Would you say it's okay or not okay to cut a tenured faculty member? These were very serious discussions. Can you, can you rank hierarchically the disciplines that are crucial to the liberal arts? So, with, and, I, and, I, and, and I would say we, the administration and the board, ultimately the board, will decide how far down that or up that list, whichever way it is, we go in, in cuts. So it was full discussion, uh, but very painful. So those were the things. We did cuts. Uh, we also converted, for example, a lot of the expenses were very rich, and I'll get off this topic in a second, but we had half-time faculty members with full-time benefits. That You simply can't do that. And so we switched to using adjuncts uh, at that time. And then not too long after that, we were over 90, 95% tenured or tenured track. And we knew that that couldn't go into the future because you never want to do that kind of cut again. And yeah. so our graduate uh, programs were started with term faculty. Right. And the graduate programs were, were they uh, co-ed from the outset? Legally, they have to be. So there was no arguing about that. The only difficulty and ambiguity was what do you do with that first-year graduate program, which is also the senior year for the women, and also with the fact that we made Chatham undergraduate education more attractive because we said that they would have priority preference for uh, getting into our graduate program. So you could be an English major and you could still uh, come into the PT program. And that drew a lot of students. And I always felt sort of lucky that we weren't challenged uh, about limiting that to women since by law, the graduate programs were co-ed. Mm-hmm. But it worked. And, and I know you're very interested in a lot of the athletics developments. I'll never forget the first dual enrollment student that we had that is undergraduate and grad, potential graduate was a hockey player. And there she came because of both things being present, the PT yep. program and the hockey team. And, and still working today, over a third of all the undergrads are doing an accelerated degree program. So That's marvelous. That's yeah. marvelous. Yeah. No. Well, it saves. It saves a fifth of your tuition. Well, and, and those programs are so competitive, it's also a huge leg up knowing that as right. long as you perform well academically, you've got the place. So, so exactly. A, exactly. a big attraction. So, so right. you referenced the hockey uh, and, and also the desire to change the image of what a, a women's college was uh, in the 90s. So, so t- talk about the decision to, to launch the hockey program. Where did that inspiration come from? <laughs> Obviously, with the Penguins, Pittsburgh's a hockey town, but, That's but right. you know, how did it come about? Because this was the first, first women's hockey program in Pennsylvania. That's right. It was the first varsity women's hockey team. Uh, well, it, like so many insights in life, it came out 
partially deliberately and partially accidentally. Uh, the deliberate part is, uh, I can't remember now the name of the other organization that wasn't the NCAA. We made a decision at, by the end of my first year, because we had sports. We had yep. uh, the best, the worst gym in the country. Uh, you may have read that <laughs> our, our architect call it the best junior high school gym still on a college campus. <laughs> uh, but we had sports and we quickly decided to leave the league where all the women's colleges were and to, and to go into the NCAA. And uh, that is another one of those visible symbols of grace that I often right. thought really mattered, that we might lose, but we were going to be playing where you could get better and you could start gaining some respect. Uh, but ice hockey happened uh, <laughs> because uh, we were looking for sports and trying to decide where we wanted to go. We were not using sports except indirectly as a recruitment tool. Uh, we knew sports were important and we decided to emphasize sports because and, and to support them because um, – we knew that more and more high school girls were uh, wanting to play sports, something like two out of three wanted to. And that seemed to me the place that uh, women's colleges in general had gone wrong, is not respecting. As part of this image changing, what is a women's college? Well, and the, the revolution of Title IX in the 70s, you had this explosion, right, in, in women's high school and college sports. Yeah, absolutely. And, but this was the 90s already, and yeah. nothing could change. Chatham's only plan for athletics had come about when it thought it might go quiet. Uh, yeah. And so we began to say, no, 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 <laughs> we need to have it anyway. Uh, it's very, very important. And then my two children grew up in Western Pennsylvania, and no one ever warned me I'd be a hockey mom. And <laughs> so I was in Johnstown one day, and I saw all these girls playing on a boys' team. And I was in the women's room, and I started talking to the girls. And I said, so you know, tell me more about you. What are you going to do when you go to college? You uh, and I came back and I asked the staff, I said, please research how many girls are playing hockey in western Pennsylvania, in eastern Ohio, and northern West Virginia. The number came back a whole lot. And uh, they, these tough little girls were wanting to play hockey so bad that that's what they were doing. And, uh, of course, my sons would be very unhappy. They'd say, Mom, a girl just hit on me. And <laughs> I said, no, you don't mean that <laughs> in the game. And then we got a lot of help from uh, Dave Klasnick, who has worked with PNC, and he worked with uh, high school hockey teams, and he helped us. He gave us the recruiting the lists, and so we began to recruit hockey players. Uh -huh. and, and so given that you were the first and only in the state, who did you play against? That's a good question. We actually played, we, yeah, who did we play against at first? I think we played out of state uh, people and, and travel was very expensive. We played some of the New York State public institutions that already had 
uh, already had women's teams. It didn't last very long, though. This was we we were a pace setter, which was quickly quickly followed. And we and, had to rent. You know, today ice. we have <laughs> right. Sorry. Yeah, there. Unfortunately, they're still not a not a rink other than where the pens play anywhere near to Chatham. Right. Yes. We're, we're trying to fix that, but taking a long time. You'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but today, you know, uh, the women's ice hockey team, they're drawing players from Canada, from Alaska. Oh, yeah. And a big part of that is, you know, the demographics obviously are, are, are challenging in, in our region. We're, as the program became established and grew, did, were you reaching out more broadly for uh, recruits? We were. We had Canadians, too. At one point, we were put under warning by the NCAA because we... Uh, seemed, they thought, to differentially scholarship hockey players, uh-huh. which we did not, but it had to do with the Canadian-U.S. exchange rate. Uh, so I still remember that one with a little bit of pain. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So so after the the success of launching the hockey program, one of your big capital efforts was, you mentioned having the, you know, the best middle school gym on, on a college campus, you, you had a, the ambitious proposal to build the athletic and fitness center in the middle. Okay. Can you talk about, cause I know that had some issues with neighbors and their <laughs> tennis courts and all that, but, but the decision to build that and, and how you figured out, you know, what, what you wanted to include in it and, and how that fit into the, the sort of the right. broader division three sports strategy. Yes. I, I should say, First, that if it's okay, that we were able to do that, which is a very, very important building. It was the first freestanding building uh, put on the Chatham campus in over 30 years, which is almost unheard of that an institution does so little building. But uh, we had actually done something before, which was very important in concert with this theme of paying attention to academic excellence as our primary strategy. There had been a great need for improved science space. And so we had renovated uh, and added to Buell in what I still think is a really lovely job that was done of blending the old with the new. I think one of the things Chatham has done best is creative reuse. So for those who haven't seen yes. it, right, this is a, a very old traditional red brick building with a wraparound of modern yeah. science labs in it. Exactly. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. And it's a real challenge because it contains all the names of the great scientists through history, none of whom were men, were women. And so <laughs> that was part of the sort of thing we would talk about on yeah. campus. So uh, anyway, the, so yes, the athletic facility was a very well, Esther, important b- Before step. we go to the AFC, can I ask you one thing just yes. to, to relate the story from Buell? So one of the, the prizes of when we give tours of Chatham these days is, of course, the, the Tiffany window oh, yes. that was given to Chatham by the, the 15th class of Chatham back in, 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 in the 1880s. Right. Um, and my understanding is here, this, this amazing work of art was rediscovered when you, when you were doing this project. So can you tell us I, yes, where I the window was, you. how I, you found it, and <laughs> how it ended up now in this prominent place? I certainly can. It, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a funny story. Um, 
we, I think, had a strength as an administration of always trying to look to the future, even if it seemed like pie in the sky. So one of the things that we had talked about early on was what if we ever got to build anything new? What what public would it matter? What role would art play in it? And would it be important to have art in it? Because some people think it's a little odd to have a window by Tiffany, which is, uh, it turns out, a knockoff of part of the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Why why would that uh, be in a science building? But the reason is that uh, we had had the conversation. We were committed to having art if if we could. Uh, And when... Uh, it was, I think, my first week there. A senior faculty member came to my office and said, I think you need to know that, that you know, how faculty are just wonderful. They'll come one by one yeah. and tell you a special story. And I think you need to know that we think there, there is a Tiffany window here that's an original, that it's in the basement of the library, he said. I said, really? So, uh, so we sort of forgot about it for a long time because there was nothing to do until we got into trying to design uh, the Buell edition. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, people began to, the staff began to prod me saying, well, so what's the art going to be? And uh, I said, well, let's go see if indeed there is a Tiffany window. Well, there was, uh, and we called the Metropolitan in New York and said, we think we have an original Tiffany window. Is there someone you could send to come and look at it? They were so excited because it was an as yet unknown to them Tiffany window. And so uh, someone came down the very next day and unboxed it. Wow. And it was really very exciting Um to pieces where had fallen out. It basically had to be completely rebuilt to the tune of a quarter million dollars. But it was ours. And it had the uh, the motto, the Chatham motto on it, daughter's Shelby's cornerstones. And no, we didn't know what the design was until, as I said, until this uh, restorer said, I found out what it is, what it is. It is a knockoff of the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> and that's the reason that they were able to get such a good deal from, from Tiffany. Because he didn't uh, have to design it. <laughs> so. Very cool. Well, thanks for sharing that story. Oh, so you bet. so back to the AFC. There's actually one more little, little piece of that, which yeah. is those original alumni threatened to put the names of those who didn't give on the window or under it. Ooh, <laughs> when it nice. <laughs> Forevermore. These Shame. women took no prisoners. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Like when it, it came to building the AFC, yeah. uh, what, what, what would you like me to well, just just so you done the Buell project, a- added modern science, which of right. course was vital for preparing these students for the health careers, right. as well as other other science areas. And then, uh, you know, the next big 
construction project was was an athletic center in the heart of campus. Right. Um, obviously, a lot of persuasion with the neighbors and other things. But I'm I'm just you know it's a, quite an innovative building. Interesting elements yeah. included in it. So I, I was just curious, sort of the origins of that, how it came about, and what you put in. Well, uh, there was there was a great need. We really had no athletic facility. Um, Swimming was very important. We had a swim team, but again, no real facility for it. So it couldn't really compete. Last thing we could do is hold meets. Um, we knew we wanted a basketball team. Uh, I think you had asked me about squash at one point. Uh, yeah. That was part of our assessing what women needed because we, we really thought, this can't all be team sports. It's right. very important to be doing sports. Uh, and we were also playing with a golf team at that point around with the idea of it. Uh, it needs to be something that women can gain from individually in terms of their health and growth and pleasure, but also perhaps could be a professional meeting. And we had one uh, trustee in particular who was a great squash devotee, Jamie Edwards, who uh, insisted, thankfully, that they be at this international competition standard. So you can tell me better than I know, but I think they're very fine squash courts. They are, and we now have uh, uh, NCAA teams. Yes. And uh, next next year we'll have a top 20 team in the country. Whoa, that's At all great. levels. Good for ready you. To, ready to go beat the Ivies and Stanford. and. <laughs> well, we could do that. That's great. Yep. That's wonderful. Yep. That's just great. So it, the, for the rest, it, uh, it was just the usual design process. Mm -hmm. The architects were some of the best collegiate uh, facility architects in the country. We, uh, it showed how strong our fundraising had become, uh, that we came off the Keep the Vision Splendid campaign, which uh, name again, I think, points to the symbolism of what we were always trying to convey and do. That was a quote from Rachel Carson. But yep. we, we were saying, keep the vision splendid. This this is not just we're going to barely eat by and live. We must have a splendid vision or it's not worth doing. Uh, but that campaign, which had originally included an athletic facility, had to come to an end. Now, the happy news is it had been projected at $18 million. It came in eventually over 30. But mm -hmm. uh, we weren't able to include the athletic facility because we couldn't get approvals. It became a horrible political football. Drawn-out contention with the oh, neighbors, right? Oh, it yep. was just awful, just yep. awful. We had to wash the tire trucks every night before they left the construction site. <laughs> and many of these neighbors had been used to Chatham when it was a declining institution, and I'm sorry, in my ruder moments, I would say that we were the keepers of the Royal Park. And so but the fact is we had to grow and we had to have these things. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of restrictions that still exist that I think are unfortunate uh, because somehow they thought it was going to be like, uh, you know, a massive conference center at Pitt or rocks, rock concerts or things like that. <laughs> right. Uh, 
but uh, but it was okay. We straight immediately went into another fundraising campaign and raised the money and and uh, were able to do it. And it was a wonderful project. It was uh, there were very few gathering places on that campus for the whole campus, so it played a lot of functions. Yeah, and when 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 you did the design for that, obviously that freed up that old middle school gym. Yes. Did you already have a vision for what it would become when you were doing the athletic center? We did. We were we were always working to master plans, and uh, Ken Doino did a a wonderful job with that building, uh, which to this day uh, I don't believe has air conditioning. But he did a lot of dehumidification. It's very important in an arts building that you're, you don't have your paintings, your materials rotting and so on. And I think people have been really pretty satisfied with this arts building with its basketball court in the center. I love the fact you kept the center circle and, and all the old bones of the building. So you have these wonderful high ceilings and, right. and great, great art space. So yes. very, very creative. So, so a, a next big element of the transformation was the decision around faculty contracts. And you mentioned the painful period you had gone through in terms of, of freeing the resources to add the graduate programs and fuel the growth. Can you talk about sort of that next phase and thinking about, you know, how you were going to handle, you know, review, promotion, and, and, and the tenure system? Um, you know, as often happens with codified things, uh, the enforcement wanders away from what's written. And so there was actually not much wrong with the Chatham faculty manual in terms of standards of scholarship that were expected, uh, role of the president, which was an issue that went to court at one point, role of the president in make in contributing to faculty decisions on a qualitative ground uh, and not merely on a financial grounds. So there were a lot of uh, kind of coming back to the norm uh, as it was already written in terms of faculty evaluation and so on. So those were uh, sometimes painful, but very important cases. And the faculty was perfectly up to it because there were many Chatham faculty members who were publishers, aspiring publishers, uh, who wanted to know that it mattered uh, if they were going to bother to do it because their demands are very heavy between advising and teaching and trying to do that scholarship too. So that's how that was, was pretty much enforced. But I assume what you really are most interested in is the question of how we went from uh, over 90% tenured or tenure track, over 95% down to, I don't know what it is now, but I believe it was around 20% when I left. Under 10 now. Great. Uh, It was just clear from the agony of those cuts, which did include one tenured professor, but as I said, there was... On both sides of the issue, there was strain. There were yeah. overpaid part-time people, and there were severely underloaded, in some cases, one person was teaching four students a year that we let go. Uh, and 
you know, we we were taken to all of the authorities on this, uh, who all concurred. You can't run a railroad that way, much much less a college. And so, uh, so the principle of needing to do things differently was established in order to have a future for the institution. And some of it was serendipity in that uh, undergraduate faculty, we could tell, were not, it wasn't hard to tell, we're not going to be happy with non-tenure track positions in those programs. Um, and But they thought it was going to be just fine if it happened in the applied graduate programs. And in some ways, the applied graduate faculty didn't care as much because they were working professionals who had a day a week off if they wanted it and that if it was required that they uh, engage in their craft and art uh, and stay involved with their profession. So the serendipity was that those programs grew so fast and so large uh, that they very quickly uh, in numbers became forces to be reckoned with. But the lovely part of this story is that the undergraduate faculty that we at first had to accommodate because they were, understandably, I understand why faculty wanted to fend tenure, uh, and, and it's what they'd had at Chatham, um, began to get enormous respect for their professional faculty colleagues. And they began to say, oh, maybe our assumptions weren't right because they saw that they were very high quality professionals, that they uh, also published, they also did scholarship, they also uh, counseled students very closely and well. And then when a few of the liberal arts faculty had their children go to our graduate programs, they went, whoa, <laughs> now I really see how terrific these, these people are. The final piece of turning the cultural tide, and I'm sure everyone, including the professional faculty, if they had a chance at tenure, probably would like it, wouldn't you? Uh, but uh, the, uh, the liberal arts faculty began to realize that we were actually enforcing what was codified in the manual, and that was, and I, they knew that, but they began to enforce it themselves more firmly about standards of scholarship to get tenure and so on. So that, because tenure decisions are enormously expensive decisions, and so we weren't going to lessen, you know, keep up with any kind of lower standard. And so they began to ask for uh, term faculty in the liberal arts programs because they understood that that was probably the only way they were going to get any more faculty. Mm. And so uh, so then that practice began to spread uh, throughout the institution. And it was good for the institution and it was good for the faculty. It represented no lowering of quality because the revisions that we did do in the manual said that the same standards of scholarship, uh, the same expectations of performance would be true whether you were on tenure track or whether you were on term contract. Uh, so the standards for term contract were very tough and no one uh, ever thought that those were second class faculty. 
right? And the, the term contract model that you developed um, to, to build the long-term uh, careers of particularly the graduate faculty, for them, that was uh, an improvement over what they had had, right? It was, it was giving them more security, a longer term contract with the organization if they got to the capstone level, is that right? Yes, and most of them, because they had been in industry, and very few came with prior academic experience, uh, for them, uh, unlike people who've lived in the world of tenure, five-year contracts were pretty good things. And they are some of our best faculty. Uh, I, I don't think there's any question about it. There, no one doubts their dedication, their advising skills. Uh, and, you know, that said, there's, there's a great deal to be said for, the, for tenured faculty as well. So mm-hmm. great. you either care so, so, or you don't as an employee about yeah. your organization. So, so obviously, universities are some of the most long-lived institutions on the planet. They, they've been built to last, as it were. And yet, you know, in this first decade of your time at Chatham, describing a series of really major organizational changes, how did how did you approach that? How did you sort of uh, get get the you know the mobilization of support from the different stakeholders to to bring about this series of changes, which obviously had, had you know really positive effects, but change isn't always easier embraced by everyone, right? So. Oh, you're so smart. <laughs> That's exactly right, of course. But um, I have to first sing the enormous praises of the Chatham Board, who 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 did not just say yes to anything. Uh, uh, they are very questioning, very caring, and therefore challenging. Um, and they would put us through our paces. Consequently, we would come prepared, either with outside experts or uh, with very carefully developed cases to, to try to make our point. Um, there were some really tough things along the way, uh, and I... I don't want to convey the wrong impression by saying this because I believe I was very, I tried very hard to be very consultative, but it wasn't always by the traditional means. Uh, Chatham was an institution marked, uh, and it was well known in higher ed, by uh, an institution marked by faculty governance, not shared governance. Hmm. And my commitment was to move to shared governance. And that, of course, comes painfully if you have an institution that has had a great deal of faculty governance. For example, the budget would be sent at one point directly from a faculty budget committee to the board. And what the board had learned, this was before I came, what the board had learned in its own self-examination before they hired me was that governance was out of whack at China. So they had rewritten their, uh, their board uh, handbook. They had given the president appropriate executive authority on campus. They intended to, and did honor shared governance. But it was painful to a lot of faculty, especially. And it was a painful time for all of us to live through. 
I tried very hard, particularly informal, to be informally to be very consultative. I told you about the conversations uh, on how to cut because I didn't want to just say to a faculty committee, "You go, bring me the list of names of who has to go." I, that just didn't seem fair to me. So I said, I'll take the hit for reaching the decisions, but we're going to establish the principles together. Uh, so uh, I would get the hit for that. Then, then, and that was fair. That, that's, yeah. that's why I was there. But the other comparable thing was when uh, the co-educational decision had to be made, uh, I uh, impaneled a board committee to study the meaning of co-education and what it would mean at Chatham. And uh, working, obviously, with Jen Potter, then the the, uh, rising board chair, I think she was. And um, I also created a campus study group with about 16 people, senior faculty members, uh, very few administrators. And we, we worked very hard. We met every week trying to find alternatives to going co-educational. We thought about creating a Claremont College model with a co-ed institution on one side and a women's college on the other. Uh, We tried to do, think through all those things. And so when it came time for the decision, uh, our internal community was very pulled together and we had less... uh, and meanwhile, I was writing letters and talking about reinterpreting education for women. We studied very, that's another thing I would often do, is really go out and study. Sean Coleman and I, executive assistant to the president, traveled a lot um, to understand how co-ed institutions continued to honor women. And your own former institution, Rutgers, became a model for us. Uh, as we designed the Women's Institute and so on. So we tried to anticipate, did a lot of study, a lot of work, and a lot of communication and a lot of uh, collaboration for any of those decisions. But again, because of this basic shift from faculty to shared governance, I'm not sure it always felt like that. Sure. And the the shared governance model for coming up with the, the capstone contract system, was that something... Did you use a similar approach in terms of engaging faculty to help in the design of this new structure? How, how, how did that actually play out? Well, uh, we had been, we could go all the way back to New College where I talked to you about my being an iconoclast about what ought to count for what. Uh, and how did you define capstone? And we, we had these conversations the whole period I was there. But when it got time to really important to redesign it, uh, I think I have to give, uh, if I'm remembering the sequence of changes correctly, Bill Lenz credit for that, because I knew that there had to be a very significant faculty leader leading such basic change. And so uh, I appointed Bill Lenz, Dean of Innovation. Uh, in order that this would be uh, moved from inside, Bill is not the sort of person who's anybody's pawn, that he and I would meet with some frequency and talk about 
what his goals were, what I thought the goals should be. And he was, of course, also meeting with the faculty, with the academic vice president. So it, it came about through a network of conversations and collaborations because people knew why we had to do it and how we had to, to change things. Great. Esther, let's let's pause there and okay. then we'll we'll resume resume the discussion. This has been a great start. Thank you so much okay. for uh, I taking hope it's the time. What you wanted. Really great Thank to you. speak with you. It's a pleasure. Thank you.